Well, welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study. We're going to finish up the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3. And we've been in this series, Strong, uh, Strong Faith Perverted Justice now, for seven weeks. And this is going to be our final message tonight. But Habakkuk, in our book study, has been asking the question, where is God when the world falls apart? And Habakkuk looked around during his day, and he realized, wow, something's not right. <laughs> uh, God's people are not doing what they should be doing. Aren't you seeing this, God? And he calls God to judge. And God answers his inquiry and says, okay, I'll raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, which were probably the most wicked people on the face of the earth at the time. And Habakkuk has some issues with that, but we see here it's all resolved in chapter 3. He comes to understand that God will judge and uh, that God is sovereign. Now, the opening words here, just a couple words about these, these opening words in chapter 3 before we read it. Um, notice it says there, a prayer of Habakkuk. So it is a prayer um, in the way of a psalm, which means that it was probably sung, this chapter was probably set to music and sung by the nation of Israel. It has that implication. And it uses a word there according to Shugianoth. We really don't understand what that word is. It has something to do with music. It's used only one other time in the Bible. And it's used in Psalm 7 to the introductory comments of that psalm, uh, which is a psalm of David. And so we uh, know that it was something to do with musical meter or something. We don't, we're not really sure. But it has something to do with music. And then the, the chapter closes, and it emphasizes that this prayer was set to music, because at the end of the whole chapter, it says, to the chief singer of my stringed instruments. And by the way, just before we read this, that word prayer, the Hebrew word in its form is used some 77 times in the Old Testament. Uh, 32 times it's found in the book of Psalms. And so this, this chapter was a prayer, it was a hymn that was uh, sung by the people of Israel in worship to the Lord. Well, let's read the chapter and then we'll uh, break it down into our uh, brief outline tonight. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, this, the prophet, according to Shugianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. That word Selah is also used in the Psalms, and it basically means to pause, to just gain some reflection. Uses it three times throughout the chapter. Continuing, it says, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at the heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and wreathed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light, of your arrows as they sped, at the flash 
of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enter my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the, come upon the people who invade us. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive tree fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then the closing statement to the choir master with stringed instruments, indicating that this was a psalm that was sung. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Pray that you would just bless it to our hearts, to our minds. Help us as we close out this book, Lord, that we would see your vision as he has, if you have shown it to the prophet Habakkuk. And Lord, we all know that judgment is coming one day. But Father, I, I think of our own nation, and I think it's always too soon to quit. You never know you could revive this nation. And Lord, we just pray to that end. We pray tonight you bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far we've seen the reaction of the prophet to the corruption of his time. We've seen the response of God to the prophet's reaction. We've seen the recognition of the character and plan of God by the prophet in chapter 1. All that's in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw the reluctance of the prophet to speak until he hears from the Lord. That's a good lesson for anybody. The reasons why the judgment of God would come. The revenge that would come upon the Babylonians. Remember, they were the ones who were called up by God sovereignly to judge God's own people. And they were the most vile, wicked people on the face of the earth at the time. But God used them to judge his people. And then last week we saw the results which God will bring upon those who sin against him. And we start off here in verse 1 through 16 looking at the reliance upon God which the prophet displayed. Habakkuk is realizing that his reliance has to be upon the Lord during these times. And so tonight I've entitled the message, It's Always Too Soon to Quit. It's Always Too Soon to Quit. Uh, most of us know who Am Graham Lotz is. She's the daughter of um, the late evangelist Billy Graham. And she was praying at a um, kind of a national day of prayer. And I was struck by her words. Uh, she said, this is all about calling God's people to pray. And then she said this, before it's too late. And judgment falls on our nation. That was back in 2014. We all agree that America as a nation is in trouble. Um, we've systematically taken God out of the picture. And evil is running rampant in our world. And Jesus must be glorified in our lives during these times. We desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. But we need to turn to the Lord before it's too late. We must pray for God's mercy while we can. We know that judgment is coming. There is a time when judgment comes. You hear people use phrases like, well, the chickens come home to roost, or the skeletons come out of the closet, or 
It's time to pay the piper. All those phrases are saying you're not going to get away with it. Sooner or later, we'll all face consequences of the choices we make, both personally and nationally as a country. So you cannot mock God forever. You cannot ignore God and pretend he just isn't there. You cannot do as you please without inviting judgment from on high. And so we need to do something. We need God to do something before it's too late. And that sounds a lot like what Habakkuk has been saying in these first two chapters. See, God clearly told him after he cried out to God saying, what are you going to do about all these people not following your ways? They're getting away with everything. And God said, okay, I'll bring judgment. I'm going to use the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this wicked, vile people, to judge my own people. And see, here is the culmination of all that we've read in chapters 1 and 2. Finally, Habakkuk gets it. It's kind of, we have a turn here in the book. The whole tone of the book changes. It moves from confusion to clarity, from fear to faith. And Habakkuk is willing to, even though he doesn't understand God's plan completely, he's willing to totally commit it to him and say, okay, this is it. See, nothing has changed on the outside of Habakkuk's world. Nothing. The people of God are still disobeying God. The Babylonians are still going to rise up and judge the people of God. But see, God has used these trials and these tribulations in, in the prophet's life. And even though nothing has changed on the outside, guess what? Habakkuk has changed on the inside. There's a lot of bad news in chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk. We've gone through that. But Habakkuk 3 changes. It's full of good news. The book ends on a note of hope and praise. Well, how did this prophet move from his initial worry of fear and uncertainty to a place of confidence, joy, and praise? What happened? How did he get there when nothing around him changed? His world is still the same. The people of God are still mocking God. Violence still fills the, the streets. The Babylonians are still going to come and judge God's people, invade Jerusalem. <clears throat> See, outwardly, all the circumstances are still as messed up as they were when we began this book. Nothing has changed. Yet, this prophet, Habakkuk, has changed on the inside. How did it happen? Well, this, this chapter gives us the answer. The outline is very simple. Um, I put some more details in your outline if you got that off the app. But uh, we're going to hit basically three main points here. We can learn three things from the spiritual journey of the prophet of Habakkuk. A prayer, a vision, and a testimony. A prayer, a vision, and a testimony. Now we're going to kind of dial in the, the outline a little more than that. But let's start with a prayer in verses 1 and 2. This is what he says. He says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And we already indicated that word's used 77 times in the Old Testament. And it's, it's referring to just that. But look at what he says in verse 2 as well. He says, O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. In other words, I can recall everything that you've done, Lord, in the history with our people. And he says, O oh Lord, do I fear? In other words, <laughs> boy, I... I I need to respect that. You've done a lot in the midst of your presence amongst us, in the midst of all these years. And he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In other words, do it again, Lord. That's what he's asking. But then he says this, in wrath, remember what? Mercy. See, Habakkuk is finally to a point God has brought him to a point through all these trials and tribulations that he's seen and gone through. God has brought him to a point of accepting that judgment is coming. There's nothing he can do to stop it. 
Remember what his name means. His name means to embrace. See, here we see Habakkuk the prophet embracing the truth of God, the impending judgment upon his people. It's as, if, it's, as if, it's as if he's saying, Lord, I know bad times are coming, and you know what, okay, I can accept that. I'm not going to fight against you and your plan. You're the sovereign God. But Lord, if hard times must come, please don't let the Babylonians completely wipe us out. Remember mercy, or we will perish. Remember what mercy is. Mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. So mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Well, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God. And when we look at our nation, we definitely deserve the, the judgment of God. They've systematically stripped God out of the picture. And God is not just going to idly stand by and allow that to happen. And one day judgment will fall. We need to embrace that as Habakkuk did. But we can also plead with God, in judgment, please be merciful, God. See, we'll know in a few days whether God will extend mercy to our country or not. We have an up-and-coming election, and it's really a turning point. It goes one way or the other, and it really gives us the opportunity as Christians to be praying that God will be merciful to our nation once again. And hopefully this time, if he is merciful, that we will begin to recognize him and weave him back into the picture. And as Christians, we would become more bold in our faith. See, this is a perfectly biblical prayer to pray. It's honest, it's desperate, it's, it's really the kind of prayer that God will answer. Notice that he says, he asked God to do again in his day what he has done in the past. He says that twice. Do it now, Lord, in our day, in our time. See, this ought to be the prayer of every thoughtful Christian at this critical moment in history. We ought to read this prayer against that backdrop I mean, everywhere in our community, I hear Christians say, well, what can we do? You know, we'll just continue to pray. And I mean, most people are giving up. They're willing to sit on their hands, do nothing. I don't believe God calls us to that. I mean, some people are depressed. They're concerned. Other people are, feel that our country could be on the, the brink of revival Perhaps that's true. I don't know. I certainly hope so. I'm just not sure about the timing. <laughs> when you read about revivals throughout history, the, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the layman's prayer revival, even in 1904, the great Welsh revival, these revivals spread around the world. I mean, when you read about them, it feels like, did this really happen, or is this just a make-believe story from another planet? We have to ask ourselves, are, are such revivals possible in our day? Is it possible that God would open up heaven and bless our country once more? It's easy to give in to doubt it's easy when you consider the gravity of our situation, especially as a nation and the world. But you can also look at that as it may be a good sign because revivals generally come during desperate times. During desperate times. So you generally don't receive a miracle until you desperately need one. <laughs> We're... Definitely desperate. It seems that 
God often will not move in power until things have completely fallen apart, until we're in dire straits. And if that's true, then I would say that we're in a good place for the mighty move of God. Now, understand, we believe revival is a sovereign work of God. He can move from heaven anytime he wants. And remember, the fire of God comes down from above. It's not worked up from below. So we don't want to conclude that somehow we can generate a revival. That's not what revivals are. Revivals are the sovereign work of God. But if revival, fire, power must come down from heaven, I think we can at least maybe put a little kindling together so the flame could catch and build into a roaring work of holiness across the face of our nation and the world. There's an old Chinese prayer. It says this. It says, Oh Lord, change the world. Begin, I pray, with me. <laughs> oh Lord, change the world. Begin with me. Or there's an old spiritual song that says, It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. See, we got to get our eyes off of everybody else and put them right here on ourselves. Revival begins in our hearts, in our lives. The greatest challenge is looking in the mirror. That's where revival must begin. And so we see here this reliance upon God, which the prophet displayed in verses 1 to 16. We see his attitude. Um, he's, he he he, acceler he accentuates the greatness of God in verse 2. He says, hey, I've heard the report about you and your work, and Lord, you know what? I fear. Why? Because he's the sovereign God. I was afraid, he says. See, Proverbs 1.7 says, to fear the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 reminds us that the holy, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 16.6 says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. I think it's time we have a healthy dose of the fear of God. Not just in the world, but in our churches. We've grown too cozy with our God and Creator. Now, we don't need to be fearful as believers, as those who are trusting in Christ. We don't need to be fearful of God's judgment falling on us because Christ took that judgment upon himself. But we do need to be fearful of God. And if you do a word study on that word fear, you can spend a lot of time. But you know what it means? It means fear. <laughs> That's what it means. Now, it contains a reverential awe. It doesn't mean kind of cowering in a corner. It means respect. It means all those things. But bottom line, it means to be afraid because of who you're dealing with. His attitude was a clear reminder of the greatness of God. We have to get away from the idea that God's our big buddy upstairs or our divine Santa Claus. Or you see these bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. Well, that's just all wrong, right? God doesn't need to be the co-pilot. He wants to be the pilot. He's in control. So we need to be reminded of that. And then he appeals to the Lord, and it's based upon his confidence in who God is and what God can do. I mean, we're not just serving any God. We're serving the God of the universe, the Lord God creator. See, Habakkuk realized here at the end of verse 2, he says, in the midst of the years make it known. I know about your work. In wrath remember mercy. He realized that God was going to judge his people for their sins. 
But he also, he also appealed to the mercy of God in executing his judgment. He didn't argue that God's judgment shouldn't fall. He said, no, it has every right to, but God, be merciful. That's what our prayer needs to be. God, be merciful. First of all, to me, a sinner, right? That's a very biblical prayer when you think about it. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Think of the, the blind men that when Jesus passed, they cried out for God's mercy. You hear people today say, well, I want a God who's fair. I want a God who's just. Well, he is all that, but you don't want that personally because if God gave you justice, if God gave you what was fair, you would be in hell right now. But what does God do? God gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve and he withholds from us what we do deserve. See, this prayer of Habakkuk centered on the possibility of deliverance, on mercy that would somehow temper the judgment that he saw God must bring. If you want to do a work, a study on revival, read through Psalm 119. Most people say, well, Psalm 119, isn't that about the word of God? Yes, it is. But it's also about revival. Over and over again, it says, bring life to, or quicken, or revive. And we know that revival can only come as a result of the Spirit's working through God's Word. See, that's why revival is fleeting today. We have too many churches who are not teaching, are not preaching the Word of God. They're preaching their opinion or whatever else. That's not going to cut it. And so he talks about this in the first two verses here. But he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Well, look at the second one. His vision that he saw. This vision that God gives him in verses 3 to 15. After his prayer, Habakkuk has a vision of God. And you could say this is a theophany. Sometimes God appears to people in the Old Testament. And we would call that a, a theophany. It's God, the appearance of God here on earth. And so the prophet recorded this experience. And these, these words in the Hebrew, by the way, are very poetic. But the point is very clear. Habakkuk knows that his nation is facing imminent judgment from God. Remember, it was Habakkuk who said, Lord, do something. <laughs> well, this answer, the answer to his prayer is this vision that he gives him. <clears throat> it's as if God says, Habakkuk, You've forgotten who I am. You're talking as if I can't hear you. As if I don't have any power. Well, let me remind you. Let me show you who I am. Because if you understand who I am, then you're going to be able to sleep at night. See, that's one of the biggest problems I find in Christians' lives. Is they've forgotten who their God is. They've forgotten how powerful God is. When you get to that point, it's good to sit down, get a notepad out and a pen and start writing down how God has blessed you throughout your life, how God has answered your prayers at times. And when you get down and out, you take that list and you rem you're reminded of God's work in your life. We see here in verses three to seven, his adoration focused on the acts of God in the past. He starts off in verse 3, he says, from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Another, that's another name for Mount Sinai. We know what happened at Mount Sinai, right? God gave his law to Moses. And it, it says there, Selah, like I said, that word just means pause. It, mean, it means just kind of a, a little break. <clears throat> but this is speaking of where God has come from. His, his holiness, really, is the idea. See, we don't just serve any God. We serve the Lord God creator. In verse 3 there, it also says his 
glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. At the end of verse 3 there. This is speaking of the presence of God being overwhelming. It covers everything. See, that's where it requires some respect when you come before God. You know, he's not just the man upstairs. He's not your buddy. He is the Lord God creator. And it's overwhelming to be in his presence. When's the last time you were overwhelmed as you were ushered into the presence of God through reading his word or through prayer? Verse 4 really speaks of the power of God. It says, His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands. And there he veiled his power. It's giving a kind of a visual image of something that is powerful. Brightness, holiness. Verse 5, he recalls the plagues of Egypt. And they were a graphic display of his mighty power. He says, before him went pestilence and plague, followed at its heels, at his heels. In other words, when his judgment falls, you know it. It's not something that can be missed because it's a display of his mighty power. In verse 6, it speaks of that his power is rooted in creation. And he's the one who controls the planet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. It's speaking of his sovereignty over creation. You know, we think today that somehow we're going to control the weather. It cracks me up when you hear certain candidates say, oh, if I was elected, you know, I could stop the hurricanes and I could stop the floods and the fires. No, you couldn't. It's ridiculous. God is sovereign over all those things, even over disasters. I mean, think about it. Even if our nation itself, you know, went to zero emissions, guess what? There's three or four other nations that are spewing stuff into our atmosphere that we cannot control. The idea that somehow human beings are affecting our environment to the degree that we only have, as some say, eight years left. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And then verse 7, it says, I saw the tents of Kushan, Kushan is a reminder of Cush or Ethiopia. Remember, the wife of Moses was a Cushite woman. It tells us in Numbers 12.1. It reminds us here of the people who saw and heard all he did were filled with fear. It says they trembled because they recognized the power that God had. And then in verse 8, we see the analysis of this, this coming judgment of God upon Judah. And it was based on what he understood to be the anger of God. This is the theme here in verses 8 to 15. Verse 8, it says, The target was not the rivers and the sea. It says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? The word chariots oftentimes refers to thunderclouds. Following the description of the earth being flooded. Psalm 104 verse 3 says, Who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters? Who makes the clouds his chariot? Who wait? Who walks upon the wings of the wind. <clears throat> this could also, some believe, be a, a subtle reference to a false god, the false god of Baal. He's described in pagan literature as the rider of the clouds. He's considered the lord of the rain and the storms. That's what they believed him to be. But either way, 
It's saying that's the target was not the rivers and the sea. Beginning of verse 9, it talks about the terror of a mighty warrior. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Speaking of the curses of the shafts, refers to this great warrior whose word is like the arrows shot by a mighty warrior. Walter Kaiser, in his book on mastering the Old Testament, says of this verse, the warrior described in this text certainly is no ordinary soldier. His weapons and the scope of his battle are cosmic. No mortal or earthly power will be able to withstand his assaults. The Lord's arrows were commissioned under divine oaths. They were a sign of his judgment. Verse 9 to 11 here, it speaks of the trembling of all nature. It reveals the impact of his anger. Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in wreathed. Writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave force its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. This is speaking of all nature trembling before God. Even in verse 12, it talks about you march through the earth in fury. Notice the language here. You thrashed, threshed the, na the, the nations in anger. The threshing of God's anger directed toward the heathen, toward those who are not his people. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. This talks about the triumph of the Lord. Talks about his Messiah that's bringing salvation to the people of God. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Possibly a reference to either the Pharaoh of the Exodus or the firstborn, uh, the, the, the firstborn that were slain, or the king of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, whose house was built with unjust gain, as we learned. <clears throat> Either way, they're going to be judged. They're going to be trampled. It says, laying him bare with thigh and neck. Thigh to neck. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came with a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is another reference to God's miraculous protective intervention on behalf of Israel in the midst of the Red Sea. It speaks of his sovereign rulership of the universe. And it provides the much needed assurance to the prophet Habakkuk because he wants to assure Habakkuk, hey, I will preserve your people, my people. I will preserve them. It's going to look pretty bleak, but you know what? They're going to make it. And we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can also be assured that what God has saved, he cannot lose. You are secure, not based on your own goodness or your own righteousness or your own faith. You're based 
You're, you're, you're secured by the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary into which you place your faith. So it's, it's important that we remind our things of these things with this, this coming judgment that God has a plan here. He's working it out. And so he's focusing and he's recounting what God's activity has been in the past. He focuses especially on Exodus, in the time of the wilderness, crossing of the Jordan River. And during that time, God repeatedly worked spectacular miracles in their midst. And what God is saying is, hey, have you forgotten what I can do? Have you forgotten what I did in the past? See, if he did it before, he can do it again. God does not change. Sometimes I think that we read in the Bible certain things that God does, certain miracles and things like that, and we wonder, wow, I wonder if God could do that today in our century. Well, guess what? He's God. <laughs> he can intervene anytime he wants. And we see that happening, I believe, personally, even in our, our own nation. See, God will intervene. All hope is not lost. If you look through those words in verse 13 to 15, I mean, if you just look at what he says, he says, you went out, you crushed, you laid him bare. Verse 14, you pierced. Verse 15, you trampled. See, this is all things that God have, has done in the past. And guess what? He gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. And you can clearly see two things here. The utter defeat of those who oppose God ultimately will take place. We look around us and we think, well, those who are opposing God are getting away with it. No, they're not. The utter defeat of those who oppose God. And secondly, the divine determination to do whatever it takes to deliver God's people. That's why replacement theology is such a damning theology. Replacement theology says, well, Israel disobeyed God, so he kind of disposed of them, and then he replaced them with the church. That's why they call it replacement theology. And so there's some within the church today that believe all the promises to Israel are now null and void because of their disobedience. They turned away from God. They turned away from God's Savior, the Messiah. And because of that, they're under the judgment of God. And so now God has raised up the church and the church has replaced Israel. So Israel really doesn't matter anymore. It's irrelevant. That's what they believe. That's what replacement theology believes. That's not true. God's promises to Israel are eternal. They'll always be God's people, and he will protect them. And it's going to get a lot worse for Israel. In the end times, it's going to look like they're going to be completely wiped out, but guess what? They're not going to be. <laughs> See, that's why it's important to understand those who curse Israel will be cursed. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. I really believe that that's one reason why our current nation still can hold hope that God will bless our nation because of our support for Israel. See, there's many people who believe that God is not big enough to handle our modern-day problems. If you just had a bigger God, you wouldn't worry as much if you just had a bigger God, you would be stronger during that moment of crisis. If you just had a bigger God, you would be less tempted to compromise. Well, guess what? He's the only God we got, and he is big enough. He is big enough. He can turn things around. Well, also you see here his ability to fathom the power and greatness of God. Verse 16, it left him, it left Habakkuk in a weakened condition. Look at what it says. I hear. <laughs> in other words, I got it. I finally get it, Lord. I totally understand. 
I hear in my body, he says, trembles. And my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It left him in an utterly weakened condition. Sometimes when we finally, finally get the message that God wants us to get, guess what? We're at the end of our rope. We are in a weakened condition. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. Well, we've seen here the reliance upon God, which the prophet displayed. And now verses 17 to 19, we want to turn and see what it says about the rejoicing of the prophet. I told you it ends on a good note. The rejoicing of the prophet in the Lord and his salvation. Verses 17 to 19. What's interesting in this text is, first of all, there's acceptance. We see that in, in verse 16 at the end there, don't we? He says, man, I'm not feeling too good about all this. I hear you. I get it finally, Lord. It's your plan, not my own. Bring the judgment, but Lord, if you could just be merciful during that judgment, I'd really appreciate it. These are your people you're talking about. So he got the message from the Lord, but he says, boy, I'm not feeling too good and at the end of verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble trouble to call upon people who invade us. What's he saying? Message received. Got it, Lord. I get it. The Babylonians are going to attack. And I know that one day you will judge them as well. And I, I, I just got to resolve myself to wait Wait. And as it turns out, Habakkuk most likely did not live long enough because Babylon would not fall for another 70 years. But you know what? That doesn't matter. This is God's timeline, not ours. Habakkuk is saying here, hey, I got the message. 10-4, Lord. I got it. I get it. So he accepts it. He accepts that judgment is going to fall. See, sometimes in life it's better to accept the bad things before they even happen. <laughs> My mind thinks like that a lot of times. You know, I'm thinking, boy, okay, if I get on this plane and fly back to Pennsylvania and the plane goes down and I die, do I have everything in order? What happens? Well, I'm with the Lord. It's irrelevant about me. But for loved ones that are left behind, are they taken care of? Or if you go in for a job interview and you just kind of accept the fact, well, this may not work out the way I want it to. doesn't mean you give up. But if you're willing to accept the bad, then you can really embrace the good when it comes. And this is a good message for us to hear before an election. So we wake up Wednesday morning and Maybe our guy didn't win, whoever that guy may be. Does that mean the world is over? No. I mean, trust me, our nation has seen its way through many presidents who were not very effective. Let's just put it that way. You <laughs> were still here. Now, yeah, it, it could incur a lot of hardship on people. I understand that. But you know what? If we wake up Wednesday morning, and whether our guy won or not, we have to accept it as God's plan for our nation. And I really think this election is a choice between God's judgment and God's blessing. We'll see how it works out. But I would encourage you to do your part. So there's acceptance. Second, there's commitment in verses 17 to 18. It shows us what faith looks like when life tumbles down all around us. Look at what it says in verse 17. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Now remember, Israel was a, back in this time, was an agrarian society. Okay, they, they, they were farmers, you couldn't just go to the store and buy what you wanted off the shelf. You had to grow it. 
And so he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor, the, nor fruit be on the vines, these are a way that you sustain life, and there's, it's not there. He says, even the produce of the olive fail. In other words, there's no olives. And the fields yield no food. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. Then your flock, all your meat, be cut off from the fold. So you don't have any vegetables, you don't have any meat. And there be no herd in the stalls. There's nothing for you. <clears throat> What's he describing here? He's describing a total economic meltdown. A complete meltdown. How is this possible? Well, it, it could, we could be on the brink of an economic meltdown in our own country right now. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. But look at what he says in verse 18. This is why I said it, it ends on a positive note. Yet I will rejoice, what? In the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How is it possible, after describing this total economic meltdown, that he would even use a word like rejoice? That, that word means to jump for joy. We might even say it means to dance for joy. I mean, this is his portfolio, you might say, of the day. All these olives and fruit and meat. What do you do when you're completely wiped out? What do you do when all your investments disappear? I mean, you look at the stock market today, it's very volatile. It goes up, it goes down. What would you do if tomorrow the stock market imploded? Went below 10,000. What if it totally just tanked? Went down to nothing? What would you do then? All your investments are gone, your pension's destroyed, 401ks are wiped out. What do you do then? How do you face that? What if on top of that you lose your job? You don't have any safety net anymore. What if you actually run out of food? <laughs> For some of us, that might be a good thing. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but... What if you can't pay your bills? If you're a parent, what if your child ends up in jail? What if your loved ones never come to Christ? What if you go to see your doctor and he says, sorry, it's terminal? <laughs> what if your spouse, your loved one, has a heart attack and you're left alone? What if America falls to a foreign power? What if you lose your job because you're standing up for Christ, you're a Christian? What if you end up in jail because of your own Christian faith? What then? See, these aren't that far from reality, beloved. Any of these things could happen. Could you say then, yes, Lord? When the dearest thing in life is taken from you? See, I think as Christians, too many of us have a God for the good times. <laughs> we serve God and we love him and we praise him because things are going pretty good. But what do you do when those hard times come? If all you have is a, a God for the good times, beloved, you don't have and you don't know the God of the Bible. Because the Bible says, you know what? Sometimes the fig tree doesn't bud. <laughs> Sometimes there's no grapes on the vine. Sometimes the olive crop fails. You have no oil. Sometimes the, the fields produce no food. Sometimes you go to the, the pen and there's no sheep. It's empty. 
There's no cattle in the stalls. What do you do then? Well, you can get angry with God and say, how dare you? You can give up on God altogether, I guess. Or, you know what? You can choose to believe in God anyway. Say, God, I don't know why this has happened, but I'm going to trust you anyway. Like Job. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, oftentimes we mistake faith and our feelings. I'm here to tell you, faith is not about feelings, beloved. Faith is not about feelings, much less about our circumstances. That's not what makes our faith real. See, faith chooses to believe when it would be easier to stop believing. And what Habakkuk is saying here, I will wait patiently. And while I'm waiting, I'm going to rejoice. I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait for anything or anybody. It irritates me. You're in traffic or you're in a supermarket line, whatever it might be, it just bugs me. It's like wasted time. Habakkuk says, you know what? I'm willing to wait, God. I'm going to be patient because I know you have my back. You know what's best. You have a plan. You're going to work it out. Judgment's coming. I'm praying for your mercy to prevail, but I understand judgment's coming. We deserve judgment. But Lord, if you could be merciful, we'd really appreciate it. And we'll strive to do any, everything to exalt your name as a result. See, so many times God brings judgment and you see people turn momentarily. Think of 9-11, right? You had members of Congress holding prayers on the steps, praying. No longer. See, here Habakkuk found new strength in the midst of desolation. Sometimes you have to get to that desolation point before you can rejoice in the Lord. And this gets to our testimony here, verses 17 to 19. It talks about his dependency upon the Lord would not change even if the circumstances of life deteriorated. We still have to be dependent on the Lord, whether there's figs or not. Whether it's our president or not that we voted for is irrelevant. We still need to depend on the Lord. Because our delight, verse 18, was in the Lord alone. And in verse 19, we see that his decision was based on what the Lord could and would do. Look at what he says in verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. What he's saying here is the Lord God, the sovereign God of the universe is my strength. Our God is all powerful. And so he points out here, he says, you know what? He makes my feet like the deer's. Uh, the phrase, my feet, speaks of our journey through life. If you've ever traveled over to Israel, I remember when we were over there on the barren hills on the west side of the Dead Sea, you can see some deer up there. And there's nothing really there, just a bunch of rocks, but they're scampering around, and they have, they're very sure-footed animals. If we went up there, we'd probably slip and fall. And what he says is, no, God makes my feet like the deer. They, they, they keep us planted. He keeps us planted on firm ground. See, if you know the Lord, he will give you stability in those, during those slippery times, those slippery moments of life. He's going to give you grace to stand when otherwise you would literally fall apart. We all have had those times in our lives as believers. And we look back and we wonder, how do we keep it together? It reminds me of Ephesians 6, verse 13, which says, when we put on the armor of God, it says, and having done all, we will stand safe and secure when the battle is over. 
That's our position in Christ. We are secure in Christ. This is where the book ends of Habakkuk. And that's where we will end our journey as well. I think the most single important observation of this book is as the book ends, nothing, nothing has changed in Habakkuk's circumstances on the outside. But Habakkuk has changed on the inside. The people of Judah have still forgotten God. Violence still reigns in Jerusalem. The wicked are still oppressed. The, the wicked still are oppressing the righteous. The Babylonians are still God's appointed instrument for judgment. Hard times are coming. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. Nothing has changed except this. Except this one thing. Guess what? The prophet has changed. Habakkuk has changed on the inside. We all come from different situations. Different life experiences. Some are happy and blessed. Some are sad. Some are healthy. Some are sick. Some are excited about the future. Some are filled with the dark clouds of doubt and uncertainty. I mean, you can see that very clearly <laughs> in the two candidates that are running to lead our nation. One is an optimist, one is a pessimist. There's no way around it. It's very clear. Just listen to them talk. But see, if we know the Lord, if God is our Savior, we can still have feet to tread on the heights in the worst moments of life. We can stand when all others around us are falling. That's what he says. He says, he makes me tread on the high places. Places we shouldn't be able to go. We can go with God. There was a president of Wheaton College, V. Raymond Edmond. And he used to tell his students when they were frustrated with school or wanted to drop out, he, he would say this. He says, it's always too soon to quit. <laughs> it's always too soon to quit. See, that's a good motto, I think, for us as we wrap up our study of Habakkuk. I told you in the first message that Habakkuk's world was filled with a strong faith but perverted justice. See, every one of us is coming in one of, from one of three places. Either we're in a confused time of confusion. We're coming out of a time of confusion. Or we're about ready to go into a time of confusion. So we need to keep these studies in our heart and our mind. If you don't need it now, you might need it tomorrow or the day after. See, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then and only then will you discover <laughs> that Jesus is all you need. That's the real message here as we conclude this study. As the book ends, nothing's changed on the outside, but the prophet Habakkuk has changed on the inside. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our hearts as we've gone through this study together. And Lord, we do remember your faithfulness in times of trial. We pray for our country that you once again would extend your mercy and grace to this great nation. Lord, we are a nation founded in Judeo-Christian principles. And I know that we've come far away from that. But Lord, help us not to give up hope. Lord, I pray that you would have your will done 
We know you will have your will done in this next election. We pray that you would give us the grace to accept if it's a blessing or judgment. We commit that into your hands. And Lord, if there's anyone listening who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer, Lord, that when it's prayed from a sincere heart, that you will answer and you will save that person and transform their life for all eternity. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.